On today's episode, Ashley shares the story behind the 1963 kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. Welcome to Crime Bar. gonna be honest my heart is racing really fast ever since i ate that taco bell oh so like you might need to run to the bathroom it i'm in, in like no mid pain. recording i'm in no pain but i definitely feel like i like my heart is like a boom 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 instead of like chill booms booms <laughs> booms <laughs> you know what i mean no you mm. just described heartbeats no but like like instead of like boom boom it's like boom 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 oh anyways like i just walked up like a, a flight of stairs not my flight but like okay well if longer the than taco that. bell runs through you and you gotta pause <laughs> that's the beauty of not doing this live i can just edit that out yeah that's what pausing is for uh do you good afternoon <laughs> hello <laughs> Thank you for joining us here today. <laughs> what does your heart sound like? Is it more of a boom, boom or a boom, boom, boom? <laughs> are you, oh, are you asking me that? Oh, no, I was like, as like a rhetorical question. Oh, our listeners. The, I want the them way, to check in. But the way you looked at me was like, well. Well, I actually looked at you because I was wondering if you wanted to sing the song, bring it on back like a boom, 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 boom. The t- that one song? I don't know what song you're talking oh, about. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, I don't know what song this is. We can cut this, but now it's gonna really bother me. So it's um, boom. I think it's by Tiesto. You know this song. Gucci Mane's in it. <laughs> Sorry. Being that I said like a boom, 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 boom. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's ringing no bells for oh, me. Oh no! Okay, I looked at you as if you're gonna be like, like a boom, 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 and then you didn't. And anyways, crime, huh? So, anyways, the story I'm covering <laughs> today. Uh, I'm doing the kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. Okay, I got most of my information from an amazing Wondery podcast hosted by John Stamos because he's also Wonderful. obsessed. Well, yeah, he's wonderful, <laughs> but he also loves Frank Sinatra. So he was really interested in this story. Mm-hmm. That's called Snatching Sinatra. And then my other source was uh, an episode of This American Life, which was hosted by Ira Glass. And then I also read Tina Sinatra's book. It, she wrote like a memoir, like growing up in the Sinatra family. Mm-hmm. She's Frank Sinatra's youngest daughter. Okay. And she talks about um, the family's perspective of this experience of her brother's kidnapping. So... Those are my sources. And then I just wanted to do this story because I love Mad Men and Palm Springs (laughs) and Rat Pack music and anything that like 
from this era and I didn't really know the details of this story. Mm -hmm. I knew something about it, but like I didn't really know anything about it. So I'm already a sucker for the whole era. And then learning in depth about this was very fascinating. I'm I'm so stuck on the fact that when you said Tina, I was like, I don't know anyone named Tina. <laughs> and then I haven't been able to get off of that since you oh. said it. <laughs> I don't know. I have a, I you don't meet any Tinas anymore. I have an aunt named Tina. Do you? Yeah. She's like 60. Up there. No. She's up there. I mean. She's a young Tina. Oh, no. She's. No. She's, that, that's what I'm saying is you don't make. I don't think Tinas are made anymore. Yeah. Actually, I don't think so either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're Something right. to think about. Anyways, the story starts off with a guy named Barry Keenan. Barry was born and raised in Los Angeles. His birthday is June 26, 1940, so he's a cancer. Mm -hmm. He was raised very, very Catholic. He remembers being as young as six when the nuns at his school started drilling into him the horrors of being damned to hell. They told him that it's like having a white hot poker held to your back and no one is there to help you. And that's the way that it is for eternity. So you better be a good boy so you can go to heaven. Like there's a lot of heat coming from one source on your back or like the Like fear. a poker, like a fireplace poker. You know, oh, like, that metal like being rod. branded almost. Basically, yeah. That, that's like basically what they were, they told this little six-year-old, Barry, that like. Oh, Barry, you're going to feel like you're getting branded for eternity. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> that sucks. So, um, and then it was around the same time that, you know, the nuns at school are teaching him this. Uh, one of his aunts moved in with Barry's family and she was just as religious as the nuns. And so whether he was at school or at home, he had these like religious nutty adults, mm -hmm. like just scaring the shit out of him about going to hell and like needing to be a really good boy so that you go to heaven instead. So little Barry became obsessed with the idea of getting into heaven. He had a lot of fear and anxiety on the daily, like any little mistake he made, he worried he would just get like sucked down into hell. Oh, like he yeah. just had so much fear. It eventually became so crippling that this tiny little boy thought, if it's God's will, I'll go to heaven. And he hopped on his tricycle and he closed his eyes and he drove straight into traffic. And he got hit by a car. Oh, can you imagine you <laughs> zoom through like that Frogger game? And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So he gets That's hit awful. by a car. He got hurt, but he uh, he survived it. And he said that he remembers people crowding around him and the woman who had hit him with her car was like, why did you do that? And he told her, honestly, I was trying to get to heaven. Was this a wake up call for his parents? No. <sighs> why would it be? Because also Barry's mom suffered from severe depression throughout his childhood and in his whole life yeah. and multiple times throughout his life attempted to commit suicide. And if you're religious, Suicide is the ultimate sin. sin yeah. So imagine how confusing that was that for this little boy who's so fixated on this and so scared of it, knowing that his mom continually risked going, going to, to hell. hell. Yeah. So it was just, it was a whole confusing process. The whole, contradiction it, of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but eventually he figures out, he's started to realize like he needed to focus less on cutting corners and getting into heaven as soon as possible and just like leading a good life, mm -hmm. a life worthy of going to heaven. And then one day he goes down to his family's basement and he says an angel appeared out of thin air and it was so beautiful and real. And then it became a routine 
he would go to the basement and talk to his guardian angel and then more angels would appear and eventually he actually started calling this group of angels the committee because they came to him so often and he said it brought him so much comfort and he started going down there so regularly that his aunt was like what are you doing down there mm-hmm. so he told her the truth because he's like this is amazing it's beautiful and like you know i don't feel scared about going to hell anymore and so she listens to this and she makes him promise to keep that a secret <laughs> because she said <laughs> if he told people <laughs> he would look crazy yeah and obviously like these days that was in the 1940s and nowadays, if a child tells you that he's hallucinating you on bring the regular, them to the doctor. you go to the doctor <laughs> and you get to the bottom of that. But at the time, it was just, you know, normal to like brush things under the rug and not talk about certain things, that kind of thing. So as he grew up, he continued seeing these angels, but he kept it to himself. And he started experiencing pretty extreme mood swings, like very high highs and low lows. And um, just like his mom, he had bouts of depression. So he started drinking alcohol as a way to cope at a really young age so yeah. like by high school his like high school classmates said that he was like a drunk isn't that normal for people who are schizophrenic to like mute or like suppress delusions I think, I think and it, I, things yeah, like that i think so it's sad because he learned that um when he was drunk the voices w- would get really They're quiet. quiet yeah so Barry went to University High School in West LA, and I had never heard of that. And I, it's like the who's who of high schoolers, apparently. Really? Like if you look at their alumni in West LA, you said. Mm-hmm. It's right next to the VA. Mm-hmm. Like Elizabeth Taylor and Marilyn Monroe went there. Uh, Barry's th- that was before his time, but Barry's classmates either had famous parents or would go on to become famous themselves. Ryan O'Neill, James Brolin, Sandra D. And Frank Sinatra's oldest daughter, Nancy Sinatra, yeah. was all in Barry's class. Oh, my God. I, James Brolin, you said? Uh-huh. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Hachi yeah. machi. <laughs> and then a side note, just completely unrelated to this story. And she went there many years later. But I just thought it was interesting. Patricia Krenwinkel also went to the same high school. She was one of the Manson girls involved in both nights of the infamous Tate and LaBianca murders in 1969. The first night she murdered Abigail Folger, and on the second night she murdered Rosemary LaBianca. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. That's, yeah, just yeah. a little side note. Yeah, <laughs> murder, murder. <laughs> so, um, anyways, Barry is literally rubbing shoulders with the rich and the famous. His parents aren't famous, but they definitely have money. So this is just like the world that he's used to, and he seemed to have a pretty fun and like somewhat normal high school experience. Other than like the little petty crimes and pranks that he and his buddies used to pull. He was part of this social club that was sort of like a high school frat. They were called the Barons. They sound sick. Yeah. You had to have a nice car. You had to date pretty girls. You had to be willing to play pranks of varying degrees of serious and illegal. Like sometimes they'd get drunk and walk around neighborhoods. And if they found that anyone had left their garage doors open... The boys would sneak in and steal the bottles and cans to take to the recycling center for cash. So kind of harmless. Yeah. And then other times a group of like two boys would set a palm tree on fire. And at the same time across town, another group of boys would set palm trees on fire so that it would make the fire department confused. So that's pretty illegal. And yeah, it's pretty like not okay and stuff. <laughs> you also had to play poker with the guys every Friday night. And then you also had to commit to hosting a Saturday night party once every semester. That way, 
between all of the guys getting one Saturday to host, it guaranteed that you'd have a house party to go to every weekend. God, they're, that's busy. It's a lot to yeah. commit to. But most of all, if you were part of this social club, you were making a lifelong pledge to always help a fellow Baron in need. Interesting. So Barry started dating this beautiful redhead named Shannon. They were completely in love with each other. Barry is now in his 80s. And when he was talking about this story, Mm -hmm. this is a girl he dated in high school. But he says to this day, Shannon was the love of my life. Oh, They were inseparable from the moment they met. They did everything together. He said when he was with her, the committee of angels went truly quiet for the first time in his life without being drunk or you know inebriated Mm -hmm. and he could truly truly be lost in the present moment which just made his time with her all the more romantic and intoxicating of course and then very tragically shannon died in a car accident (gasps) not long before their high school graduation oh my god so barry was a total wreck this was obviously so devastating and it was probably from this point on where he really started battling depression. And then after Shannon was gone, he started hearing the angels talking to him again. His parents ended up divorcing around the same time, which added more stress, stress and pain to his life. And he lost all interest in school. So his parents told him that if he got good grades, good enough to graduate, they would buy him a brand new Corvette. And the plan sort of worked because he did it and he graduated and they gave him the car. But six weeks after getting it, he totaled it when he drove it off a cliff. (laughs) So, and he survived, but obviously after losing Shannon in a car accident just a few months before, that made this accident that much more traumatizing. So Barry's mom briefly dated this guy named John Irwin. He was kind of like this tough guy from the East Coast who had spent time in prison for robbing delivery trucks for the mob. (laughs) Um, anyways, he's dating Barry's mom and the three of them take a trip to Mexico. He and John went scuba diving and some horrible thing happened where um, Barry's like breathing apparatus stopped working and he almost drowned, but John saved him. Okay. Barry says that that bonded them in a way that he can't explain. And he became very close friends with John forever after that. He said John was sort of like an an uncle or like an older brother figure in his life, Mm -hmm. even after John and his mom broke up. And then after high school, Barry actually ended up doing really well for himself. He became a very successful stockbroker and real estate investor. He was a really good businessman. Although in both podcasts that I listened to where he's interviewed, he details how he became so successful at the stock market. Barry's, cocaine <laughs> no no oh. barry's dad had a security company and so he would give barry his new stockbroker son a little secret heads up oh. and then barry would turn around and invest his friend's money based off the information that his dad had told him and as i'm listening to this i'm like i don't know what i'm talking about but i think that's called insider I was trading say, i wanted to say I was like, <laughs> is that insider trading but i don't want to sound like an idiot and then both the podcasts that i listened to where he's saying that both ira glass and john stamos are like um isn't that illegal? Yeah. Isn't that insider trading? Very much so. And Barry, he's like such a sweet old guy. And he's like, no, no, it was all very legal. He's like, my dad said it. Yeah. And so literally he became successful because he was doing insider trading and he made his friends a boatload of money that way, not realizing that is very illegal and not something he could get away with today. So regardless, Barry made a boatload of money. 
he made his friends a boatload of money and he made his friend's parents a boatload of money. So he was just (laughs) really successful. Insider trading sounds not so bad. (laughs) Not so bad. So by 1962, he is 22 years old and he was making around $10,000 a month, which today would be about $90,000. He owns a home on Balboa Island in Newport. He gets he gets engaged to a beautiful woman. He's got two cars, two boats, a motorcycle. He supports his parents financially. Um, he takes very good care of those around him, mm-hmm. however he can. So life is going very well for him. Yeah, living the so-called dream. Until, Until he isn't wasn't. anymore. <laughs> Everything goes down the drain in early 1963. One day he and his fiance got into a horrific car accident he gets half ejected from the car through the windshield. So he was really, really injured and he had a very long road of recovery ahead of him. So to cope with the pain, he's prescribed various prescription medications like painkillers to deal with the chronic pain, Mm -hmm. tranquilizers to get his back to relax, sleeping pills to get him to sleep at night and then uppers to help him get through the day. So within six months of that car accident, he's a full blown addict. His fiance left him. He lost all of his investments and he couldn't hold down a job. He lost his boats and his cars and his homes. His life just like imploded essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So he starts to spiral. He spends his days just popping pills and getting drunk. He meets like some random chick and he gets married in Vegas and then a quick divorce mm-hmm. and he blows through every last penny that he has. Okay. So he starts selling window shades door to door, which obviously makes him no money. So can you like imagine going from no. making the equivalent of $90,000 a month to being to an unsuccessful penniless? Because I know what it's like salesman. to be penniless, but I don't know what it's like to make that kind the contrast of money. Is devastating. Yeah. I just can't even like fathom that. And to top it all off, his mom is recovering from her most recent suicide attempt. His dad's business had gone under and he was beginning to show signs of dementia. So Barry was under a ton of pressure to figure out how to fix his life, not only for himself, but for his parents as well. And he's like 22 years old. Like he's he's a a kid. And also now he's- I forgot he was 22. Yeah. He's also like dealing with addiction now. Yes. And- Definitely a lifelong undiagnosed mental illness problem, like for sure. Don't forget about that. So, the schizophrenia so thing. All, yeah, all <laughs> those things. You know, he was just continually having this thought that I think everyone has had at some point. One of those, like, if I could just get like one big payment of some kind, one big loan or one big win, like the things I could do to turn my life around. Like he just won the lottery. Yeah, he just he just you know kept obsessing like that. So one day. He's out for a drive on Catalina Island. Mm. He stopped off at this cliff where he and his ex-fiance used to always sit on the hood of the car and drink wine while they watched the sunset. Perfect date. Except this time he's alone. He's broken, broke, and he's popping pills and drinking by himself. He's sitting there so desperate for a solution to his problems. And then he hears someone speaking to him over the radio. But the radio was turned off, so he was spooked at first. Then he sits there and he listens, and it's none other than God himself talking directly to Barry. How lucky is that? (laughs) That's never happened to me. So he has spent his whole life talking to these so-called angels, 
but never, you know, God himself, the big guy. He is, he's never Morgan Freeman as God yeah. in Bruce Almighty style. He's or? never talked to him directly. So this is like extra profound. And God tells Barry what he needs to do in order to get himself out from under this is he needs to kidnap someone for ransom. The guy that hates sin himself is not asking you to sin. No. So Barry says that God explains to him, robbing a place like a grocery store isn't going to be enough, financially speaking. But kidnapping someone for ransom, assuming Barry follows the rules, that could work. It shouldn't be funny because I know we're literally dealing we're with mental illness. We're talking about hallucinations. So yeah, so it's not funny. It's not funny, but it is funny thinking about God being like, think bigger, Barry. Oh, <laughs> think bigger. But here are some rules. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, good boy. The, God, the, the, the guidelines that God lays out for him is um, he can't kidnap a woman or a baby. He has to do this very quickly. Like there needs to be a very, very quick turnaround in order to minimize the amount of suffering on the victim's part. And he has to pay all the ransom money back eventually. Interesting. So even his delusions have kind of a conscience? I guess so. Interesting. Yeah. So Barry goes to a restaurant. He sits down and he spends hours writing out a, quote, business plan. It was literally the plan to kidnap a person, but he wrote it in the form of an actual business plan. He said this was the most energized he'd felt in seven months. He finally felt like there was a light at the end of the tunnel and he was going to save himself and his family. So the plan that he came up with was he would rent a safe house somewhere on the outskirts of LA where they could hold the victim. He would make a list of all the people he knew who had wealthy parents but not only that, it needed to be someone whose parents really loved their kid. That way they'd be really quick to pay the ransom. He calculated all of his debts, therefore the exact amount of money he needed down to the penny. He needed $240,000, which today would be about $2.1 oh. He came up with a plan to pay off his debts and then use the remainder of the money to invest as a way to get himself back to earning good money. And if the investments are good enough, it'll allow him to pay back the family who paid the ransom. Because, you know, God very specifically said one of the rules was you got to pay back the family. So in his mind, this is just more of a business loan in an unconventional way. <laughs> and it's just a loan. <laughs> So he, so he comes up with a five-year payback plan. The The business plan was a literal business plan. Yeah. You know, it was a, a real business model. And his investment plans included buying up desirable lots in Westwood and building apartment buildings on them and investing in the development of this particular marina in Los Angeles, what is today now Marina Del Rey. I was going to say, this is not a bad idea and it's I know, been done and now. I was going to say, I have to, th I have to like really give it to him. Yeah. Even though he's drunk and high off painkillers and at a level of desperation that it's like really scary, but building apartment buildings in Westwood would have been so lucrative because it's where all the UCLA student housing is. Yes. And now Marina Del Rey Harbor is one of the largest marinas in the country. He has a better business mind than I do, and I don't, I'm not mentally ill or, <laughs> or drug or, or, or on any yeah. of those things. Yeah. 
So in his business plan, in his business plan, he never referred to this as what it really was. It was really written as a business model. And so he would refer to the kidnapping as the plan of operation. And the ransom was referred to as the proceeds. And he, as the kidnapper, was referred to as associate. He said he really didn't believe that this would be a traumatic experience for the family or the kidnapping victim. He knew no one would be harmed. So at most, they'd just be putting up with being separated from each other for a few days. Then they would happily be reunited. And then five years later, they get a surprise box of cash. And so everybody wins. I can see in a weird, twisted way. I, y- you can get it. Yeah. So he starts making a list of possible targets. And obviously, he, all, everyone he knows is is the kid of a famous person, yeah. you know, a wealthy person. That's everyone he knows. But they got to be loved. Yes. <laughs> so he, he ends up settling on kidnapping Bob Hope's son, Tony. He knew Bob had more than enough money and mm-hmm. he wouldn't hesitate to pay the ransom to get his kid back. So a few days goes by and he's, you know, pouring over the business plan, revamping, editing, making, you know, just working out all the kinks and stuff, trying to figure out how best to get the ball rolling. And he's in a barber shop in Palm Springs, flipping through a magazine while he waits for a haircut. And then he comes across this article about Frank Sinatra and how his 19-year-old son, Frank Jr., is embarking on a musical career in his dad's footsteps. The article talks about how the FBI has been investigating Frank Sinatra for ties to the mob and that they suspect he's been laundering money through the, for the mob through the Sands Casino in Vegas. And then it hits him. Bob Hope was known for his stellar reputation and his charitable efforts and how involved he was in supporting the troops. But Frank Sinatra, on the other hand, was known as a womanizer. He repeatedly cheated on his wife mm. all throughout their marriage. He was known to be a very absentee father. He was a huge drinker and a crooner who had a massive female fan base. And he was also known as a draft dodger. So when World War II broke out, everyone, and I mean literally everyone, who was capable of serving in some way, dropped what they were doing in order to help their country. It's how Rosie the River came to be. Like women left the kitchen to go build ships and planes and help however they could. And men of all walks of life served however they could, including famous men. Like Jimmy Stewart left his career as a famous movie star in Hollywood to drop bombs on Nazi-occupied areas of Europe. Oh, I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Paul Newman um, (sighs) lied about his age to serve. One of the hottest men of all time. Kirk Douglas, Clark Gable. These are all people who dropped everything to go fight for their country. I didn't know any of that. But Blue Eyes Frank Sinatra was labeled as being a draft dodger because he got out of serving because doctors determined he had a perforated eardrum. So that meant he had like a medical ineligibility. When you think about that, it's like, oh, you can't go serve your country because your eardrum is like a little popped or whatever that means you can perform live on a show and it's right. very loud right totally so a lot of people believe that he there's all these rumors i don't know what what is true but there's rumors he did it himself I, yeah. and then there's rumors that he paid the doctor that, to say it <laughs> that yes that's that's one rumor or that uh, it was from an injury as a kid and stuff like that so it's just, who knows if it's real but He was hated by men who were serving because while they were out on the front lines risking their lives and their friends were all dying around them, Frank Sinatra stayed back home 
banging their wives and girlfriends. <laughs> Drinking a martini afterwards. Literally. And so he was he was so hated at yeah. that time. So he was a massive star, disliked by all of these people, largely disliked by his own country. And now that Barry is reading about all of this, he's remembering all the times back in high school that he met Frank Jr. Because he, you know, he went to school with mm -hmm. his sister, Nancy. So he remembers her saying how, you know, juniors always strive for his dad's approval and respect and stuff like that. And he's really grown up without a dad because his dad's always on the road. So, mm -hmm. you know, it yeah. makes sense that this article is explaining that junior is now embarking on a tour where he is emulating he's singing all of his dad's hits oh, with the band that his dad originally started his career with yes. so he's like quite literally trying to be his following father. in his yeah. footsteps yeah so it's like a light bulb goes off in barry's head and he thinks to himself that bob hope is just too good a man to do this to but he could justify doing this to someone like frank sinatra <laughs> i love it <laughs> yeah and he thinks it could be a positive thing for the Sinatras. I'm actually helping you. Let me help you. <laughs> yes. He literally starts to justify in his mind that, one, the FBI is going to investigate this kidnapping, and maybe they'll view Frank as a victim, therefore cut him a break with the mob investigation. And then this is also going to help his public image to be seen as a worried father. And two, it'll scare. it might scare Frank enough to actually be a better father. And then it might help bond father and son in a genuine way. And maybe Frank Sr. will be proud of Junior for surviving this ordeal. And then three, it just seems like a pretty easy target because Frank Jr.'s touring with his band and Frank Sr.'s extremely wealthy. So he's not going to have an issue coming up with the money. Barry said he didn't expect this to be traumatic for the family and in fact, he went so far as to create an entire section in the business plan titled Benefits to the Sinatra Family. He's not stupid. Yeah. He was so rational and logical in laying this all out as a simple business plan that it actually prevented him from comprehending just how horrifying and traumatic this would be for the Sinatras. Mm -hmm. He says, looking back, it was actually a pretty good investment plan, <laughs> but it was just fueled by drugs and broke panic and all that yeah. stuff. In his interview with Ira Glass, Barry said, quote, sane people don't wake up one day and decide to kidnap one of the most famous entertainers in the world, <laughs> one who has mafia connections too, because then you'll have the FBI and the mob after you. Sane people don't do that, particularly when you think it's going to benefit the victim as well as their own family. So he realizes that in order to pull this off, this isn't something he can do by himself. And so remember that social club in high school, you always help a fellow baron out. So he goes to this buddy of his from high school, a guy named Joe Amsler. He knows that Joe is out of work and he needs money. And so he guilts him with that baron guilt. Boys club. And he pitches this plan to Joe, but it kind of seems like he changed very key details. <laughs> like in order to rope joe in mm -hmm. it seems like he made this sound like more of an innocent prank for someone he knew slash maybe even a script he was writing mm -hmm. so he tells joe he's gonna pay him a hundred dollars a week which is like nine hundred dollars a week today and all the beer he wants all joe has to do is run through dress rehearsals of this plan with barry on a daily basis until they get it down pat so joe's like yeah okay i'm in sure, sure. Yeah. 
But he and Joe are both pretty mellow, quiet guys. And even though no part of the business plan actually involves harming anyone, he knows that he needs someone like the muscle to help scare the target into being compliant. So he goes to John Irwin, that guy that his mom had dated. Mm -hmm. He knows that he's not above breaking the law because in the past he's worked for the mob and they have this special connection because John saved his life. And even like a year prior to all of this happening, John was down on his luck. He had no money. He had no home. So Barry went to him when he was still successful. He got him clothes and food and an apartment. And then he paid for like uh, paint supplies so that John could start painting houses for money. So Barry really guilts John and like, a you know, I helped you in your time of need. Where would you be without that? Now I need help. So you got to help me. So John reluctantly agrees, okay. but he, he's moved on from doing illegal things. So he like actually isn't happy, happy about, about it. it. And then Barry had recently started seeing a girl named Pam. She was a straight A student and track star at UCLA who lived off a huge trust fund that her grandmother had left her. So for whatever reason, he decides he needs to inform Miss Goody Two-Shoes about his kidnapping plan because he thinks like, there's no way he can be a good boyfriend to her if he's keeping this huge secret from her. How sweet. So he tells her everything. Oh, that's my dream. <laughs> well, okay. Well, okay. Well, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Just, just a guilty conscience is hot. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of dumping him and going straight to the police, Pam, I guess, reacts like you would. <laughs> She's all about it. Oh. She thinks it's a great idea. She thinks it's going to absolutely help him turn his life around. And she's super excited about being involved in this, quote, adventure. Why do I love Pam? I don't, it's bad. All this is bad, but I'm like, she sounds, she's fun. She's like into this like bad boy thing he's doing. Mm. Like, cause it's not usually like, him. he's like a very sweet guy. So she's like, Ooh, yeah. Spice. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And so because she's got all this money, she offers to help by financing this in any way he needs. Instead of just giving him the money directly, can yeah, you imagine? Well, so she didn't have enough money to like actually help him with what he needed, but yeah. she had, you know, she could give him a few thousand bucks. She could sponsor. Something like that, yeah. So from October to December of 1963, Barry, Joe, and John run through this plan to kidnap Junior a million times. They start going to all of his shows, then trailing his every move to learn his routines and how he spends his time and who he spends it with. They even make a few attempts at actually executing the plan and then mm-hmm. something goes awry. Goes awry, like right at the last second. So they can never go through with it. Barry finds a perfect little house to rent from this nice little old lady out in no man's land of Winnetka. It's now a suburb of LA, but at the time it was literally just like nothing. nothing. So things are looking good. They just need to find the right opportunity to like actually nab him. Then they learn that Junior is going to perform regularly at the famous Coconut Grove in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, which is the same place that RFK was assassinated like five years later. Just side note. Yeah. They decide they're going to trail him during the weeks that he's doing this regular set in LA because chances are he's going to have a routine with this time frame that will make it easier to kidnap him because he lives there. So he's probably coming and going from his home to these to these regular sets. So it's just going to be easier. So Barry, Joe, John, and Barry's girlfriend, Pam, all get tickets. They get dolled up in tuxedos and gowns, and they go to this show at the Coconut Grove. 
They sit down at their table and they look over to see Frank Sinatra Sr. sitting with the rest of the Rat Pack at the table next to them. Oh my gosh. And then in like the weirdest, eeriest of things, I don't even know what you would call it. Later after the show, when everyone is gathering outside waiting for their cars at ballet, Pam is standing there alone waiting for her car because the guys drove separately because they need to trail Junior when he goes home. So Mm -hmm. she just came and valeted like normal and they are trying to like sneak off. So she's standing there by himself and they see that when Pam's 1957 Thunderbird pulls up to the curb, Frank Sinatra Sr. beelines it to her, opens the door for her, helps her in and then gives her his phone number and says, call me. Because she's hot. Yeah, well, yeah, she's hot. And little does he know, this twisted chick is funding his son's soon-to-be kidnapping and that she's, like, super turned on by it. What a movie moment. I know. Isn't it so crazy? But weirder. Yeah. So they feel good about this plan to follow Junior home after one of his sets at the Coconut Grove. After each show, they find that he drives home alone to his apartment. He changes out of his tuxedo and then he goes out with friends. So they decided they would hide out by his parking spot in his apartment building and just nab him mm-hmm. like once he gets out. The plan was to do it on the evening of Friday, November 22nd, 1963. But then, of course, the day comes. The entire nation is just stopped dead in its tracks because JFK was assassinated in Dallas on that yeah. day. Every major event in the country, like sporting events, shows, concerts, everything had been halted or fully canceled. This Friday show that Junior was doing was supposed to be one of his last performances before he went off on a European tour, which they certainly couldn't kidnap him then. So they were thinking, okay, well, if this set is canceled, then this was our last chance to do it. And now we have to bag this whole plan and move on. So he's just like, I'm screwed. I don't know what to do now. And then he realizes he's basically getting a business loan from Frank Sinatra in a very unconventional and indirect way. And he's planning on paying it all back anyway. So what if he just gets in contact with him and gave gives Frank like a real business plan? He might actually be in, interested in investing because it is a pretty good investment plan. So Barry calls Frank's record label. He starts chatting up the receptionist, trying to butter her up in a little, trying to get like a way to get connected to Frank. And she happens to mention that Frank Jr. is scheduled to perform at Harris Casino in South Lake Tahoe that upcoming weekend just before heading off to Europe. Mm -hmm. And Barry didn't know that. So he's like, okay, cool. Very cool. So he hangs up with this receptionist and just like that, he's back to his original kidnapping plan. Great. And the only issue is that John Irwin isn't available that weekend. And after the last few failed attempts, Joe got cold feet and said he just like was not comfortable going through with this. He did not want to do it. Pam isn't available that weekend either. But she gives Barry $2,500, which is like $22,000 today. Jeez, Pam. To help get him up to Tahoe. You don't need that much. Well, I just tell you I that. read that and I was like, okay, wait, like a gas, a, a, your gas tank is like a penny. Yeah, seriously. Why would you give, night in a like, hotel? It, it makes no sense. So she didn't know the first thing about managing her money, clearly. clearly. So Barry knows that Joe is not going to agree to go if he knows that this is related to the kidnapping. Mm-hmm. So he goes to Joe and he's like, I'm so sorry for making you do this. You were so uncomfortable. I shouldn't have done that. Let's try to repair our friendship. I'll treat, I'll treat you to a weekend in Tahoe. And he's like, okay, that's so nice. Random, but cool. <laughs> Barry had rented them a hotel room in Tahoe directly across from Harris. 
And when they arrived and Joe noticed Frank Jr.'s name on the marquee, he got so upset. And he's like, I told you I wasn't going to do this. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. And Barry's like, no, 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 no. Total coincidence. Total coincidence. We're just here to repair our friendship. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. So he he believed him. Like he convinced Joe that this was a coincidence and that that was totally unrelated. Men are idiots. And then he distracts Joe with alcohol and gambling. And I kid you not, they almost immediately blew through all of the money that Pam gave him. They gambled away the equivalent of $22,000 in a matter of hours. So they spent a few days there racking up a huge hotel bill. Because I guess like even though they didn't have money, you could still gamble, but like charge it to your room. Okay. I don't know if you can still do that. I, I don't doubt gamble, it. gamble, but that seems like a dumb... It's just not going to, it doesn't happen, I don't believe. I don't think that happens anymore. (laughs) Joe was just having fun, totally oblivious to the fact that Barry was keeping tabs on Frank Jr. and his movements and trying to plot how and when to pull this off. And then eventually he figures out when he wants to do it. So he opens up his suitcase and he pulls out fake mustaches and wigs and glasses and guns and confesses to Joe that he had lied and this they (laughs) were were still going to kidnap Frank Jr. Yeah. And Joe was pissed, but he's also stuck there with Barry. Like, he has no money and no way of getting home without him. So I guess he just, like, gives in. But he's, like, very <laughs> reluctant. These clowns. <laughs> I, I don't want to be mean, but, like, Come there's on. so much about Joe that I think he was, like, not the brightest. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> you don't think he was fully with it? <laughs> no. So the plan is to bring a case of wine to Junior's room. That way it looks like they're just delivering something to him and he'll probably think it's like a gift. So he'll let them in to put the case down and then that's when they'll take him. So they're walking down the hallway. They're approaching Junior's room and Barry realizes that Joe, like with every step, is like falling further and further behind. <laughs> and he he's turns around. He, <laughs> yes. He turns around and he sees <laughs> when he gets to Junior's door, Barry sees that Joe's like 20 feet behind him. And he's literally, no, 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 he, no. he's like, no, no, don't do it. Don't yeah. do it. He's like whispering, like, please don't do it. Don't do it. Barry ignores him and he knocks on the door and he hears Junior say, come on in. What? So he goes into the room and Junior's like, oh, good, you're here. He thought it was his room service being delivered. Oh. And Barry goes, I have a package for Frank Sinatra Jr. And Junior's like, oh, yeah, you can just put it right there. So he goes over and he puts it on the table. And as he sets it down, he realizes they're not alone. One of the band members, a guy named John Foss, had been in Junior's room with him. Like they were getting ready for the show and had ordered dinner. And Barry hadn't anticipated that. Like he was certain no one else was in the room. And he didn't really have time to think it through. So he reaches into his pocket to pull out the gun and it gets stuck oh god he's tugging and tugging and tugging and the gun won't loosen so junior and the bandmate are just like standing there staring at this guy who's like fumbling with his jacket they don't know what he's fumbling with and then joe slowly walks into the room so then they like look at this other guy who's just like slowly comes in waving (laughs) slow wave literally so i am late so barry's like uh this is a robbery give us your wallets but the guys have been getting ready, so they're in boxers and t-shirts and socks. So they're they just kind of like point to like their wallets are over there. Yeah. And so Barry's like, "Well, Joe, go get the money." So 
Joe like walks over and gets the wallets and he pulls out a hundred dollar bill from Junior's wallet and he like waves it at him and he's like, okay, we got the money. Let's go now. Cause he's like trying to say like, I don't want to do this. If this is all this is, let's just pretend it really is a robbery. And then right then is when Barry gets final that whole time he's tugging on his gun in his pocket i was picturing him shooting himself in the butt accidentally (laughs) i don't know that there were really bullets in it though oh because he was a toy gun oh my god he had no intention of hurting anyone so he didn't say if there was but i don't think that there was it's all so silly so he gets the gun out he's all flustered and he had also like come up with fake names to say in front of junior Uh but in the moment he was so flustered by his gun getting stuck that and someone else being there that he didn't even remember what the fake names were. So he was like, Joe, go get the money. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, used yeah. his real name. So then that's when he finally, after Joe get, pulls out the $100 bill, Barry gets his gun out and he's like, no, never mind. Like, just don't move and nobody will get hurt. So they make the boys, a junior and his yep. bandmate, lay down on the ground. They tie them up. And Barry tells the um, the bandmate, John, He kneels down and he politely tells them that they're going to need to tape his mouth shut. So would he like to blow his nose before they do that? And the guy's like, what? No, (laughs) I know. And then Barry, you're being weird, man. Yeah. (laughs) And then Barry very gently like put a pillow under his head so he would be comfortable. And he said, you know, uh, just give us a few minutes to get away. And then he turns to Joe and he goes, Joe. And he points to Junior and he says, take this kind gentleman down to the car, please. And so Junior stands up and he totally cooperates and he walks out. You know, he didn't put up a fight at all. He walked out with Joe. This feels like some weird Monty Python comedy sketch. Mm -hmm. So a few minutes later, Barry gets in the car with them. And just before they drive away, he realizes when he was tying up that other guy, he set his gun down and then left in the room by accident. This isn't supposed to be violent. I don't know that there were even bullets in it. He'd only brought it to scare Junior into cooperating, which worked. So technically, he doesn't need the gun anymore, but his prints are all over it. So he hops out of the car and he goes back to Junior's room. And when he walks in, he sees that the bandmate was not following orders and he was standing up and trying to get out of his restraint. Shocker. Right. Listen. And so when he opens the door and and the guy sees this kidnapper walk back in he like slams back down on the floor and barry's like please man we're not going to hurt your friend like we just need we just need to make a getaway we're going to drop your friend off a a few minutes away we're just trying to like give ourselves a little heads up please please just wait a few minutes before getting help Mm -hmm. and so the guy's like okay you know he says okay he knows that as soon as they get help this entire area is going to be swarming with police like this is a really big person to be kidnapping so the guy agrees to give him a little time to get away the whole time that they're driving barry is contemplating just bagging the plan and letting junior out on the side of the road because it's like real and scary yeah yeah (laughs) it was more fun in the head but it's like 20 degrees outside so he doesn't want junior to freeze so they're driving and then junior says to them from the back seat you guys have guts. I have to admit, you don't have to worry about me. I'll play along. And I, Barry, lo- I love that he's even kind of complimentary. I know. And, and so in Barry's drug-fueled brain, he thinks that that is a sign from God that he should continue this plan because it's going to work. So he keeps driving. Oh, 
But then almost as soon as they had gotten in the car and they started driving away, a snowstorm hit. So he can't make the, he can't get the head start he thought he could. Okay. So he, he gives Junior um, some sleeping pills and some whiskey to try to help him sleep in the back seat. And then before he does, Junior shows him a ring that he's wearing and he says, you better take this because if a cop sees it, they might put it together. And then he hands Barry this ring, this gold ring with the initials FS on it. And then literally right after he does that, they turn the corner and boom, there is a huge police barricade. Wow. Like up just just up ahead. Yeah. They're, it's within eyesight, but they don't, they can't see them clearly. So Barry's like, I don't know what to do. I know these men. I know the cops are looking for three men. Yeah. And there's three men in this car. So he pulls over and he tells Junior to lay down and pretend to be asleep. And he tells Joe to get out and make his own way back to LA. (laughs) So Joe. This is where our road ends. (laughs) Yeah. So Joe, he's, he's like, okay. And he jumps out of the car and just runs into the snowy woods, like blind in a snowstorm. People die like that. He just takes off. And uh, Barry gets out and he pretends to be like messing with his tires, like checking the chains on his tires or something Mm -hmm. like that. And like within a minute, these two cops come up and they start asking them, Barry, if he's seen anything suspicious. Have you seen three men acting suspicious? And one cop is flashing his light into the back seat on Junior's face, who's pretending to be asleep. And Barry's like, no, no, I haven't seen anything. And the cops are like, okay, well, on your way, drive safe. So then... um. The cops leave him. Barry gets back in the car and he's sitting there like, oh my God. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm going to try so hard not to laugh as yeah. I say this. All of a sudden, this figure is, comes out from the woods and is like running at his car. And he, the snow is so thick mm-hmm. that he can't see. And then all of a sudden, Joe yanks the door open, jumps into the passenger seat, and he is covered in blood. <gasps> like his entire he's just pouring blood from his head oh my god apparently when barry told him to run (laughs) yeah he joe i can see it joe took that literally and i don't know if he was planning to literally run the 400 miles back to la or what but the snow was so thick that joe ran full speed directly (laughs) into a telephone pole and knocked himself out cold yeah (laughs) like literally literally literally, like just knocked himself out yeah and when he came to he was freezing and didn't know how long he'd been laying there so he just got up and he ran back towards the car and miraculously the car was still there yeah so he just like jumps right in oh this and barry's i know and barry's like oh my god like the cops just happened to not see it like they just happened to have like been looking away when it happened but he's like any of those cops could have just seen this bloody guy jump into the passenger seat so he tells joe you got to ride in the trunk so joe gets in the trunk they get waved through the barricade no problem so they're driving for a while and then junior is like hey i don't mean to tell you what to do but it's very cold outside and your friend is probably freezing in the trunk and Barry is like, oh, my God, you're right. Thank you so much. So he pulls over it. And as he gets out, this line of police cars with their sirens blaring race past them in the opposite direction going towards Tahoe because clearly that other guy has now, yes, you know, gotten help and all that. So Joe gets in the front seat and Junior had been right. He was nearly frozen in the trunk. And so Joe is sitting there for a few minutes trying to warm up. And then he goes, oh, 
now I realize why my shoes were so uncomfortable. I put them on the wrong feet. <laughs> so this clown was literally walking around all day with his shoes on the wrong feet, including during this huge kidnapping scheme. <laughs> oh my God, it's like almost adorable. <laughs> and so all three of them just start laughing because well, it's so crazy and just like, what the hell? <laughs> so they're all laughing. And the fact that they're all laughing just sort of confirms to Barry in his mind that this is okay. There's been no violence. He's having fun, if anything. Yeah, he's cooperating. And then a few hours, they'll be in LA. Everything's fine. And then literally, like in a movie, as they quiet down from laughing, they hear over the radio an emergency announcement that Frank Sinatra Jr. has been kidnapped at gunpoint from his hotel room in South Lake Tahoe, and they all get quiet. Mm -hmm. And then Junior says, I'll say it again. You don't have to worry about me. I'll play along. So they make a very dangerous 12-hour drive, most of which is spent trying to get out of Tahoe's snowstorm. Barry was skidding all over the roads. He even crashed into an embankment at one point. Scary. They managed to get through another police barricade again, and Barry is like, I think now's a good time to start drinking. So he just starts drinking whiskey. On the drive? On the whole drive. The whole drive. He's already high on painkillers, and then starts drinking whiskey. Yeah, he's bored. So by some miracle, they make it out alive. So a few hours outside of the snowstorm, Junior starts asking when they plan to let him go. And as a way to try to disorient him, Barry is like, yeah, I'm actually going to drive you to the airport in Sacramento and we'll let you out there. So for anyone who isn't familiar with California, Sacramento is at the opposite end of the state from where they <laughs> were actually driving towards Los Angeles. So... When they pull up to the safe house, Junior starts to get really nervous. And he's like, what is this? What's going on? This is not the airport. And so Barry tells him the truth that this was a kidnapping all along, not a robbery gone wrong. And so he's like, you need to give me your parents' phone number. I need to let them know that you're okay and how much money we need from them. And Junior looks him square in the face and says, no, I'm not giving you their number. So then Joe and Barry just stand there like, wait, what? You said you were going to cooperate. And Junior's just like, well, you've been lying to me this whole time, so you're probably going to kill me anyways. Why would I involve my parents? The balls on this I dude. know, seriously. So Joe and Barry, who don't seem that bright to begin with, are totally dumbfounded and don't know what to say. So Barry calls John Irwin and... John arrives and tries to scare Junior into cooperating, but Junior, like, he will not budge. He's like, I am not going to do it. I'm not giving you their number. Interesting. So Barry started panicking without a direct line to Frank Sr. This is all for nothing. So he's thinking and he's thinking. And while he's trying to come up with a new plan, he realizes he and Joe completely forgot to check out of their hotel room in Tahoe. The room is full of fake mustaches, extra guns. The plan. Their, their prints are all over the room. They also had racked up a bill of $1,000 at the hotel, which is like 8500 today. So he knows that the staff is literally going to come knocking soon. And by now, Tahoe is crawling with law enforcement and the FBI. So when the guest doesn't check out of their room and the hotel staff goes to investigate and they see all this stuff, they're going to put it all together. Mm-hmm. So Barry decides, despite spending 12 hours driving drunk away from Tahoe, he now needs to get in the car and drive back and try to sneakily empty the hotel room of all of his belongings. Dude, you're in too deep now. 
Barry has been awake for almost 48 hours by this point. No sleep at all. He's been high on painkillers and drinking whiskey for 12 hours. So he knows that he can't physically drive there himself. But now they have Junior. So, you know, the other guys can't go back with him. Plus, everyone in Tahoe is looking for multiple men together, you yeah. know. So he calls his girlfriend, Pam. He tells her everything about blowing all the money that she had given him and all the clues he'd left behind in the room. And he's like, oh, and also, can I borrow more money to pay the outrageous tab I have there? And also, could you drive me 12 hours there, help me clean up a crime scene, and then drive me 12 hours back? She says And yes. she's like, sure, no problem. God, is Pam me? <laughs> but listen, <laughs> but she has an exam at 4 p.m., so she can go after that. <laughs> uh, I have to record a podcast. I can go after that. <laughs> so they do it. They make the drive up there. They get to the hotel. They go through multiple police barricades and claim that they're just a couple going up for like a day of skiing. Everything. The place is literally crawling with FBI agents everywhere. So Barry gets in the elevator to go up to the room and there's literally FBI agents riding in the elevator with him. And he's like, how are you guys doing? And they're like, fine. How are you? You know, they get off on a different floor. He gets off. He goes to his room. He opens the door to find it is exactly as he left it. So this guy has some dumb luck. So even though he has technically supposed to have checked out of this two days prior. Yeah. Somehow. A lot's going on in that city. Yeah. But like he's got a huge bill. Like, you know, there's people are still going to check out of their hotel rooms and the yeah. hotel staff still has to clean the rooms. That's true. But somehow no one went in the room. Like, no one. So he quickly cleans everything up, uh, wipes everything down, and he goes and he finds Pam. As they're packing up to leave, they realize they're being tailed by FBI agents. <laughs> There's like, they're watching them. Okay. And they're supposed to look like a couple who has just come up for a day of skiing, and that's what they told all the police barricades. So they decide to go ski the slopes a few times. <laughs> And it works. Do they the, have fun? I the bet agent, they have fun. Yeah. The agents follow them to the slopes. They watch them ski a few times and then they leave them alone. And uh, so then Barry and Pam get back in the car and they make the drive back to LA. And every time they make a stop for, for gas or to eat, this kidnapping is all that anyone can talk about. People are speculating if it's real, if Junior is dead or alive, if this is connected to Frank Sr.'s mob ties. And all the while, Pam is like giddy listening to all this gossip knowing that she and barry are boo did that (laughs) yeah that they're responsible and right under everyone's noses and they have no idea and so barry's still trying to figure out how to make contact for the ransom and then he hears on the radio the fbi has set up a makeshift headquarters at a hotel in reno and frank senior is there so he calls the hotel identifies himself as the kidnapper and asks to speak to frank so they get him on the phone Barry tells him that his son is okay and that they'll make contact tomorrow with instructions. So when Barry gets back to the safe house, he finds that in his absence, Junior has told John and Joe, look, either you are going to kill me or I'm going to kill you. He's ballsy. And when they tried to reassure him that no one would be killed, they end up bonding in this like reverse Stockholm syndrome kind of way. They start liking him. Yeah. yeah. They now get very protective of Junior and they won't let Barry see him again. They won't let Barry have any contact with him. They're like, he's our toy. Yeah. 
So the kidnappers make periodic calls to Frank Sr. They make him run all over town to different payphones to get instructions because they're worried about the FBI, you know, tapping and tracing landlines. So they they tell him, you know, you got to go to this payphone at this place. And so he's just every single phone call it only lasts a couple minutes at random payphones. So at a random small gas station in Carson City, Nevada, someone keeps calling the payphone. And every time the mechanic answers, the person on the other line keeps asking for Frank Sinatra. And after the third or fourth time, the mechanic has had it with these prank calls and lays into the caller about not doing this again. And then literally as the mechanic hangs up, he's turning away from the phone and sees two cars come screeching into the parking lot. And before they've even parked, a man jumps out of the car, runs up to him and says, my name is Frank Sinatra. Have I had any calls? And it's Frank, you know, it is Frank Frank Sinatra. Oh my God. So the kidnappers make contact. (laughs) That guy probably told that story every day until he died. Of course. The kidnappers tell Frank um, they need him to pay a ransom. And before he even hears what the number is, Frank offers to pay $1 million, which is almost $9 million today. And the kidnappers are like, no, no, no. We only need $240,000, not a penny more which obviously was very baffling to Frank and the FBI. Barry said as generous and tempting as that offer was, he simply wasn't willing to accept anything more because he was viewing this as a loan and he wasn't going to bite off more than he could chew. Because remember, he has a five-year plan to pay back. back. So he he can't possibly pay back a million dollars. So Frank Jr. gets the money together. Oh, I'm sorry. Frank Sr. So Frank Sr. gets the money together and he drops a suitcase of $240,000 cash between two school buses at a gas station on Sepulveda Boulevard in West Mm. L.A., very close to that big VA cemetery um, that's near the 405 freeway in UCLA. This was after dark and Barry and Joe were nearby watching the drop take place. John had stayed back um, with Junior at the safe house. So Joe and Barry wait a while to approach the suitcase. The plan was that Barry would pull his car up near the gas station. Joe would walk directly to the suitcase. Barry would make a lap around the block so he wasn't like a sitting duck. And then by the time he came back, Joe would be waiting on the curb with the money. They know the places that the FBI is all around. They're not like naive to it. So Barry drops him off. He does the lap. And when he pulls up to the curb, Joe is gone. He's nowhere to be found. The suitcase is sitting right there. So Barry's like, well, it's now or never. So he puts his car in park. He gets out and he starts walking towards the suitcase. And as he does it, all of these men start to slowly approach the gas station like, like a movie. all of literally all of these undercover agents are coming out of parked taxi cabs um slowly walking around the corner of the building coming out of the gas station coming out of ice cream trucks and barry sees them all and yeah. they all see that barry sees them and he just walks right up to the suitcase picks it up and walks back to his car and the agents are all standing there watching him as he throws it in the back seat Barry smiles at them and drives away. Mm -hmm. So he knew from studying FBI techniques in preparation for this kidnapping that if the victim's location is unknown, the FBI will never intervene with a ransom drop because it's too risky. Interesting. 
So he drives for a while until he is certain that he's lost any agents that were following him. And he pulls over in Westwood Village and he calls the safe house to tell John that something went wrong with the pickup. Uh, Joe disappeared. He has no idea what happened, but he's coming back to the safe house now so they can figure out what to do. And again, the the safe house is out in the boonies. So Mm -hmm. it, it takes him like more than half an hour to get back to it. And when he pulls into the driveway... He said he knew something was wrong. He knew immediately. Yeah. And so he runs in to see that that John and Junior were gone. So Barry is starting to panic now. He's going on 72 hours of no sleep. Mm-hmm. He's been high this entire time. Which is why he has been able to stay awake. <laughs> right. Nothing has been going according to plan. But now he's got the money. And he was able to shake the agents that were tailing him. So where the hell did everybody else go? You know, because these guys are supposed to get paid too. They, they, it doesn't make any sense that they just yeah. disappeared. So None he of this was, makes sense to anybody. <laughs> no, he was trying to rationalize what to do, but obviously he's not thinking clearly. So he decides to burn down the house. That way it'll erase all fingerprints and any evidence that they had been there. And literally just before he lights the match, he remembers the little old lady who rented him the house. And he's like, oh, my God, if this is her only form of income, I'll be destroying her life. Yes. So he decides against burning it down. And instead, he packs up and he goes to a friend's house to crash for a few days or at least until he can get a hold of his accomplices to figure out what happened. So he gets his first night's sleep in three days. And the next morning, he turns on the radio to hear that Frank Sinatra Jr. was safely returned to his family in the middle of the night. So he calls Joe's apartment, and Joe tells him that when he was approaching the suitcase at the gas station, he got spooked when an FBI agent started walking towards him, so he took off running. He jumped a chain-link fence and punctured both of his hands on the top of the fence. Yeah. So because he did that, it hurt. So he like pulled him up and he fell down the other side. Then he blindly, because it's nighttime and there's no lights in the cemetery, he blindly ran through the VA cemetery in Westwood and he tripped over multiple grave markers in the dark. So he was so banged up and bleeding. He didn't know what to do. So he just ran all the way back to his apartment. What's he doing now? Like, I need to know what, what's what's Joe's look life. What does his life look like now? I'll tell you in a minute. Okay. So after this, Barry calls John's apartment, and he learns that John had vowed to Junior that if anything went wrong at the ransom pickup, he would personally see to it that Junior was immediately returned to his family before Barry could get back to them. So when John learned that something had, in fact, gone wrong and that Joe had just, like, disappeared... He and Junior immediately got in the car and he drove him to an, um, the Maholland exit off of the 405 freeway yeah. and just dropped him off. And according to the news reports, Junior had started walking and then flagged down a passing cop car who took him to his mom's house. Then Barry turns on the TV to see the FBI is raiding the safe house <laughs> that they had held Junior in. Yeah. And the news report says that when the kidnappers had released Junior, so John got lost trying to find the freeway and so he pulled over and asked a gas station attendant for directions (laughs) so junior knew where they were (laughs) so he was able to so it's so sweet lead the fbi back to the house pretty 
quickly. Specifically. Yeah. The next thing they see on the TV is the Sinatra family holding a press conference outside their home in Bel Air. Junior is hugging his mom and sister and tells reporters he didn't personally know the kidnappers and he wasn't harmed during the whole ordeal. Then Frank Sr. speaks and he says, they're just so relieved about Junior's safe return. They're going to have a huge party tonight to celebrate and he doesn't even care about the money. He's just so relieved that his boy is okay. Okay. So in his intoxicated brain, Barry takes this to mean that this is all over and the Sinatras are not going to pursue the kidnappers or try to get their money back. And they seem so happy on TV that he also thinks that his plan to bring them all closer probably worked. They're having a party now. Yeah. So Barry gets to work, uh, you know, paying off his debts and he starts um, hiding portions of the money at his mom's house and friends' houses and so forth. And then within a couple of days of Junior's release, the FBI released um, sketches of the suspects. Are they just uncanny? <laughs> Literally, they were they nailed photos it. of them. So John leaves town. Joe starts making plans to leave town. And Barry goes Christmas shopping. He knows it's only a matter of time until he's arrested. So he's like, this is the least I can do. Get presents for my friends and family. So at least they have something to open on Christmas. I like love him a little bit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Barry went to Pam at her parents' house to give her her Christmas presents. And when he walked in, 12 FBI agents swarmed him. And then not long after this, the other kidnappers were also arrested. So it turned out that uh, when Pam's parents found out what an idiot their daughter was, <laughs> um, they had contacted the FBI and they set this whole thing up to... Yeah. Um, get him arrested barry said that after his arrest he was forced to completely sober up and he was just ready to be done with this so they don't give you drugs in jail i heard yeah i heard that too they don't give you whiskey so as soon as he sat down in the interrogation room he wrote a 13 page confession and then this is a little or not a little a big trigger warning he was taken to the county jail and as soon as he was placed in his cell he was raped by two other inmates And then almost as soon as it's over, a guard comes in to remove Barry and they explained to him that they'd made a mistake by placing him with the other inmates. They'd missed the memo that he was a person of notoriety and that those people are always supposed to be kept separate from other inmates. So he was literally only in there for a few minutes. And he was already... And he wasn't supposed to be. And he was attacked. Yeah. So that was obviously a really traumatizing traumatizing experience. Anyways... The case goes to trial, and as a ploy to get he and his friends off the hook, Barry concocts this elaborate story that he and his two buddies weren't responsible for this, but it was actually all orchestrated by Frank Sinatra and his son. Barry claimed a man had approached him and told him that Frank Sinatra's son needed needed publicity to boost his career, so Frank Sr. was willing to pay someone to kidnap him, hold him for a little bit to stir up attention, and then let him go unharmed. So it didn't matter that there was a ton of evidence to dispute this, and it didn't matter that Junior even took the stand to testify against the kidnappers to insist that he was an innocent victim. The media ran with that story. During Junior's testimony, he stated that his friend and bandmate, um, John Foss, was in his hotel room that night in Tahoe because he was going through a personal crisis, and he was confiding in Junior. So after listening to what a tough time his friend was having, 
Junior said he felt extra inclined to cooperate with the kidnappers because they had a gun and he was clearly the target. So he worried if he had any misstep, he would be risking his friend's life as a result. Mm -hmm. So that's why he cooperated. And then interestingly, Junior claimed that he never heard anyone's real names and that he claimed to only have seen Barry's face. He said the other two- protected the other guy. He said the other two kidnappers never showed their faces, so he couldn't confirm that John and Joe were, in fact, the kidnappers. But Barry knew that when he'd left the three guys at the safe house and they had bonded, he knew that Junior had vowed to them that if they helped him escape, he would do everything in his power to protect John and Joe. So Barry took Junior's testimony as a sign that he was trying to keep his word because Junior had most definitely seen all three of their faces and he had definitely heard all of their names. Mm -hmm. Barry said listening to the rest of Junior's version of events, how terrified he was for 52 hours straight was so heartbreaking. And because he thought that he was mending the relationship between Junior and his dad, he was even more heartbroken to hear that the first thing Junior said when he was reunited with Frank Sr. was, quote, I'm sorry, Dad. So Barry Keenan, John Irwin, and Joe Amsler were all found guilty and sentenced to life in prison plus 75 years. Wow. And then finally, Barry realized the gravity of what he had done and how serious this was and the lasting damage he had done to multiple lives. So while he was serving his sentence, Barry was uh, speaking to a Catholic priest who, after hearing about Barry's angel committee and God giving him directions to kidnap someone over the radio... This priest was the first person to tell Barry, that's not God, that's a hallucination. And that's when Barry finally got a formal diagnosis that he was schizophrenic. And now he finally got proper care. Yeah, medication. So then after serving five years, Barry, Joe, and John appealed and ended up being released from prison because it was found that Barry was mentally ill during the time of the kidnapping. So part of the agreement to an early release was that Barry had to spend a few years in a psychiatric ward to get proper care, which Mm -hmm. he did. So then after getting out, Barry attempted to make amends with the Sinatra family, which did not work. Um, Frank Sr. sent him a really scathing letter in response. So Barry just moved on with his life. Okay. There are elements to this story that are really funny, and it seems insane that these three dudes, like, could mess this up so badly, yet pull it off still. Yeah. So, like, and I was thinking that, like, if some of this stuff happened in a movie, it wouldn't be believable. So They it's need just, to make a movie out of this. And because no one got hurt, and as crazy as his scheme was, you can't deny that Barry's heart wasn't in the right place. Like, he was totally delusional and all that stuff, but his intentions were good. So with all of that in mind, it's really easy to forget how traumatic this was for the Sinatra family. So I just wanted to close the story with some details about their side of the story. So in her book, Tina Sinatra, who is Frank Sr.'s youngest daughter, says that she and her mother learned of the kidnapping within within an hour of it happening. And an hour after that, their home was full of FBI agents setting up shop. So from Sunday evening when Junior was taken until Wednesday when he was safely recovered, she said her dad did not sleep once. She had never seen him like this, barely containing his rage and grief. But worst of all, Frank Sr. was someone who got shit done all the time. So seeing him helpless, being forced to simply sit and wait by the phone was something that she had never experienced before. 
And honestly, he probably hadn't either. To add to the sting of feeling helpless, Frank got, Frank Sr. got two calls of support back to back. The first one was from J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI himself. Yeah. He gave Frank his word that the FBI would be all over this and they would do whatever they could to get his son back. The next call came from Sam Giancana, one of the biggest crime bosses at the time and the one who was running Chicago. Yes. He gave Frank his word that the wise guys were in no way connected to this. And if they could help in any way, all Frank has to do is make the call. Wow. Back to back. So imagine having the the two bosses of the literal yeah. opposite ends of society's criminal spectrum call you back to back, giving words of support and offering to help however they can. And yet all of them are forced to just sit yeah. and wait. Tina said- Because of Barry. And then you look at Barry and you're I, like, what? This, this it's a joke. sweet buffoon. <laughs> I know. I know. Makes no sense. Tina said that she had only ever seen her dad show fear once in her life on a really bad flight to New York. And she was seeing it again this time while they waited for the kidnappers to make contact. Her grandmother prayed on her knees for eight hours a day. Her mom was helpless and terrified that Junior was left somewhere to freeze to death because they knew that he that he had been taken in the snow in the yeah. snow without proper clothes. Yeah, and they, they you know they knew nothing, so he literally could have been dumped and just frozen on the side of the road. Of course. And Tina spent this whole time wondering if her big brother, her best friend, was gone forever. She said that after almost 24 hours with no word, when the kidnappers finally made their first contact, Frank Sr. broke down. They wouldn't let him talk to his son, and he begged them to let him switch places with Junior. He told them, you don't want him, you want me, so let him go and take me instead. And then the next time the kidnappers made contact, they told Frank Sr. he needed to go to a specific payphone in Nevada and wait for further instructions. So despite there being a horrible snowstorm happening, Frank immediately chartered a plane in a snowstorm. Apparently during the phone call um, on the payphone, Frank ran out of change and the call dropped. So he goes white. Yeah. He thinks that he has just signed his son's death warrant because yeah. he has no way of contacting them. Oh, and now he thinks nauseating. they're going to think he just hung up on him. Yeah. Obviously, that didn't happen because Junior was safely released. But that particular moment stuck with Frank Sr. forever. So Frank Sr. was known for hating any bulge in his pockets. He always wore really nicely tailored suits and tuxedos. And he just felt like carrying clunky stuff in his pockets ruined the aesthetic. Wasn't chic. Yeah. But after losing the connection with the kidnappers because he'd run out of change, Frank, for the rest of his life, always carried a roll of dimes in his pocket. No matter oh where God. No matter where he was, what he was wearing, or what he was doing, he always had a roll of dimes on him. And then when he died in 1998, his kids buried him with a roll of dimes. This ordeal changed the Sinatra family forever in a lot of ways. You know, it gave the kids PTSD and paranoia of being targeted. They changed their routines and their routes out of fear that they were being followed. Uh, Frank and his ex-wife, Nancy, forbid the kids from doing anything by themselves for weeks after Junior's return. Like they could only do things in big groups. And the fact that his child was stalked, kidnapped, and held for ransom simply for being his child was a heavy guilt that Frank Sr. carried with him for the rest of his life. Tina said that one of the lasting effects of this ordeal was the lie that Barry told at the trial. The claim that Junior orchestrated all of this for publicity plagued his career forever. 
Oh. And a lot of people believe he didn't become a bigger star because he couldn't shake this from his reputation. He would get like heckled at shows. I bet, yeah. So, uh, some people in, in the industry just did not take him seriously at all after that. And then, you know, the relationship between Frank Sr. and Junior had always been strained. Junior had idolized his dad and he was only four when his parents had divorced. So he spent the majority of his childhood with no male influence because Frank Sr. was always on the road. So Junior would have to listen to the radio or watch TV to feel close to his dad. They were just, you know, part of that generation where fathers and sons, they just, they didn't get vulnerable and connect. So their relationship was always awkward and at arm's length. And, you know, Barry thought that doing this might mend that. But Tina said in her book, quote, as for the two men in my family and their choked and halting relationship, our family crisis didn't forge a breakthrough as it might have in the Hollywood version. Dad and Frankie went on as they had in the past, not quite connecting. They loved each other and they knew it, but it had taken a near-death experience to bring them close and together. And when the trauma was over, the connection was broken. They were two men who shared a name and a history and a pure passion for music, and all of that wasn't quite enough. Barry claims that since getting out of prison um, in the late 1960s, There have been multiple instances that he has been shot at. There have long been rumors that after his release, Frank Sinatra Sr. went to his mob connection and took out a hit on Barry. That is a claim that Frank Sr. has repeatedly denied, and those around him deny that he would ever do that, and they claim that Frank valued life too much to ever be okay with taking it, even if it was someone like Barry. Okay. But... Barry said that he did hear a rumor that when Frank Sr. died in 1998, one of his dying wishes was that someone would finally take Barry out. And the reason Barry believes that this is real is that a few weeks after Frank Sr. died, Barry was jogging on the beach early one morning. He said no one was around and he kept noticing this thing in front of him, like just a few feet in front of his feet. He kept seeing the sand popping up in these tiny little explosions. And he was like, what the hell is that? But he didn't think anything of it. So he just kept running. And he was fine. But years later, he met someone in AA who claimed that he had spent time in prison with a guy who claimed to have been contracted out to kill Barry in the weeks after Frank Sr. had died. And the reason Barry believed this is because he had never figured out what those little sand explosions were. But what this person in AA told him was that it had been... A, a hitman yes. shooting at Barry as he ran and the shooter kept missing him and hitting the sand. Yeah. So those little sand explosions were bullets hitting their ground just feet from him. And then apparently the gun jammed and Barry was gone before the assassin could fix it and try Once again. Once again, dumb luck. I know. Frank Sinatra Jr. stayed in show business. He went on to have a really long career as a singer and an actor and songwriter and conductor. But he was always plagued by the rumors that he had staged his Mm -hmm. own kidnapping. And he passed away in 2016. After their release from prison, Joe Amsler kept a very low profile. He worked odd jobs and moved away far away from Los Angeles. And he died in 2006. And there isn't much on Joe Irwin. Like he seemed to just disappear into thin air after his release. No, there's no record of him anywhere. Barry Keenan did very well for himself. He's become a multimillionaire real estate investor in Texas. 
He's happily married and he's 81 years old now. He said after getting sober and getting proper psychiatric help, God no longer speaks to him and he doesn't hear voices in his head. He understands the gravity of what he's done and he feels remorse. Even though Frank Sr. spent the rest of his life trying to kill this story, he did say to Barry in that scathing letter that he hoped that Barry would one day be man enough to publicly admit that he lied about the Sinatra's orchestrating this as a publicity stunt. So Barry did this extensive podcast with John Stamos that was just released um, a couple of months ago because he wanted to set the record straight once and for all. He says that he and he alone was the mastermind behind all of this. Joe Amsler and John Irwin were reluctant participants who Barry guilted and manipulated into helping him. And that most importantly, the Sinatras were targeted for their fame and fortune. And that Frank Sinatra Jr. was truly an innocent victim who only cooperated as a survival tactic. Nothing more. I'm happy he did that, but I feel like it would have been nice if he had done that public apology while Frank Jr. was still alive. Well, I think that um, he has given interviews, but I don't have like the details in front of me, but he sold his story to um, a movie studio Mm -hmm. to get made into a big, like major motion picture. Okay. And uh, the Sinatra's under the Sena Sam law where a criminal is not allowed to profit from their crimes. They went hard in court trying to block that and they ended up losing. And the court actually ruled in Barry's favor and said that he could still collect money from the proceeds. But then Columbia Pictures ended up shelving it and it's never been made. The court was like, I want to see this movie. Yeah. (laughs) So there's been other like made for TV stuff about it, but it's not from like the true perspective of the people involved. They could make an absolute hilarious, like I'm picturing like John C. Riley, like randomly, maybe even like a doofusy Jason Bateman. I don't know what I mean. Like, but not Will Ferrell, but like something like that. Even like Ryan Gosling in the other guys movie. Yeah. Not the other guys, that one cop movie with Russell Crowe. I'm picturing that sort of vibe. I think that would be a really good, if if you're listening, Warner Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anything. Anyone. Netflix. I don't know if Netflix is listening. (laughs) I think they listen to our show. Most likely. I was just trying to be humble. Why wouldn't they? (laughs) Your loss. (laughs) Hulu. Anyways, that was very entertaining. And um, thanks for the laughs. But also, I feel bad for the Sinatra family. Yeah. That does suck. Very devastating. But I can't wait to Google Barry and see what he looks like. Well, I have photos. Well, I will be looking at them. (laughs) And what's kind of wild is Joe, the one who kept running into stuff head on. He's cute. I kind of, for some reason, pictured him really hot. Yeah, he was like really cute and dumb. I pictured him being like Ray Liotta, and I don't know why. No, he doesn't look like that. He looks like a like a Wilhelmina model. Skinny and like good bone structure? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Like the okay. cheekbones? Oh my God. Oh, wow. Jealous. Jealous. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you did a really good job. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Every time I do the deuces. I know. I don't know why you do that. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com.
If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.